Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Localization Fireside Chat and Podcast. Um, my name is uh, Robin Ayub. I am the founder of the platform, uh, Localization Fireside Chat. And for those who are not familiar with me, I'd love to get to know you. Feel free to drop by my LinkedIn profile and uh, connect with me, and uh, let's, have a, let's have a conversation. Uh, today, I am joined by an exciting guest, Michelle Lopez. And uh, Michelle is uh, 30 years experience in the industry, in the technology, primarily, and the localization industry. In, 20, in 24, in 2004, he founded E2F. E2F specializes in data collection, data annotation for linguistic AI and continuous translation, and develops its own fully configurable AI data annotation platform. Michelle, welcome to the channel. Welcome to the episode. Good to have you with me this morning. And uh, if you don't mind, uh, Michelle, let's get started. And uh, I want to tell the audience that you and I have been connected for many, uh, many years now on LinkedIn, and that's my first time actually talking to you. And this is what this platform has afforded me the opportunity to meet people that I have not yet met before and to have a conversation with interesting individuals such as yourself with a very uh, successful background in, uh, in aspects that relates to our, to our industry. So, Michelle, why don't we get started in telling people about yourself a little bit? Thanks, thanks, Robin. Uh, yes, I think we have been to uh, countless conferences in the industry for over 20 years or, or more, almost 20 years. And I think, yeah, this is the first time we meet. I think we must have been to uh, different conferences over the years. So to talk about myself, so um, again, my name is Michel Lopez. I, I live in Florida here. Uh, I, I grew up in France, as probably my accent makes obvious. I, and I graduated in uh, 86 with a master's degree in computer science and AI, uh, which was at the time a word that very few people have heard of. And then I, I went out to I went, um, to teach uh, AI in universities, first in Saudi Arabia and in Thailand. Then I started a software company in, uh, in Thailand, uh, in Bangkok, that I ran for like five years, and then, and then joined a, an international company that was uh, kind of one of the precursors of e-commerce, uh, worked for them uh, as a technical manager for Asia in uh, Bangkok, then in Hong Kong. They then offered me to move to the head office in Mountain View, California. Uh, and I did that for the two years uh, until they let me go. So, which, you know, like a welcome to the American life. And then by that time, I had done software for about, I would say, like almost 15 years. And I, I, I decided that. Uh, I, I was done with it. I was done with software. I wanted to try something else. So I tried a few ventures in completely different fields, including finance, including even uh, trying to open a restaurant, including many different things, importing Asian foods for a while. And nothing really worked. So, But I had a bunch of friends who were uh, uh, translators. And I said, hey, I'd I like to try out. And they were like, come on, Michel, you are not because you speak English and French. It means you can be a translator, but I, I, I thought I could, so I tried, and I, I was uh, kind of pretty successful quite quickly as a translator to the point that I had too much work, and then decided to to open a, a, a company and work with other translators, and then uh, the company was called E2F, still is, because we were focusing on English to French translation, so we did that for a number of years. Uh, started opening offices around the world so we could manage a 24 uh, 5 uh, English to French translation services to mainly for very large uh, translation companies including uh, Lionbridge uh, so but what happened is after a few years we became the largest English to French translation company worldwide and then when there was no growth available anymore so that was the first pivot that we had to do so we pivoted to becoming uh, more uh, like a regular LSP, uh, working with end clients and managing uh, pretty, uh, initially 10 to 20 languages, then expanded. But we, because of my technology background, we uh, was interested by uh, continuous uh, localization, uh, translating, I mean, automating the process of translating apps and websites uh, on, on a regular basis. So we did that for, for a while, uh, and what happened, so that was the first pivot, but then what happened is one of the very large tech companies 
uh, reach out to us first for translation into French uh, of their product, and and then later for on-site work, uh, meaning recruiting linguists uh, from different uh languages different countries then bring them on site so uh that was our first venture in kind of staffing so that was the kind of the second pivot of the company and so that we expanded in several loca- uh, locations including uh having our own offices with you know maybe 100 people working for one of the large tech companies uh having people on site in in the US in in Germany uh so that was I would say the second pivot, but what happened in during that time, uh, that client also starting to ask us uh, uh, to annotate AI data, uh, which was kind of my our first foray into this world. And that was probably like six, seven years ago. And this is when we started to realize that and behind the scene, all those large high-tech companies were building uh, very big uh, AI models or all, all sorts of things, and that they actually needed uh, companies like us to do the annotation. And so that was kind of the, you know, the third, uh, I would say, pivot uh, of the company. Uh, and when another uh, large tech company reached out to us to build data sets, then we decided, all right, this is, this is what we need to do. Uh, and that was probably like four years ago now. Uh, and at that time, the only way that there was no real tool available uh, to really build that data sets that they were needed for speech and text. So we decided to to build our own tool. So we build our own data collection, data annotation platform, which is a kind of a workflow base uh, and with a lot of modules so we can handle uh, speech, including audio segmentation, transcription, validation of speakers, validation of content, uh, generation of content in different ways, and also annotation of text for, for more like text projects where you need to annotate or label content, string, anything. And so that's what we've been doing in the last four years. Uh, and now uh, we are working on quite a lot of things, uh, including, so again, ASR, recognition where we build uh, uh, data sets and annotate data sets for you know anything including call center conversation in Japanese or, or mm. uh, medical conversations in, in Danish or whatever so this is for to, for ASR and uh, NLU so for NLU uh, natural language understanding we annotate all those conversations to help uh, the uh, uh, our clients figure out what are the entities, the relationship with entities within a conversation so they can really start to understand more, not only what a person says, but also the meaning of uh, what they say. Uh, and then we do uh, search relevance for, you know, large uh, search engines. We want to make sure that the, the answer is matches the question that was, you know, uh, uh, posed by the by the user. Uh, what, what else we are doing? And then, and, I mean, I would say the last, year also the the focus of pretty much everybody in the industry is around llm large language models so we do a, a lot of work in this area now as well so uh, oh and i forgot uh, which is relevant here uh mt machine translation where we also build uh data sets for for large uh tra- machine translation engines so that's one more pivot yeah that's that's a great story. I mean, um, you know, to unpack this, it will take me a couple of days to discuss it. But I'm going to try to unpack <laughs> it. In, I'm try try to unpack it in the uh, remaining hour that we have together. So, um, I have a curious question. You know, you mentioned early on uh, when you um, started teaching AI and when you studied AI, it was different than what we have today in terms of AI. So today, AI is in our world is seen as the language-related AI, you know, um, translation in, you know, AI get embedded into MT, get embedded into NLP or any other um, data set collection, et cetera. So how do we, what was it like back then versus now? And how do you see, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a huge shift. What was it back then? Like, what were you teaching in terms of AI? The concept? The program? Actually, no. I mean, the, you could already do a few things. So uh, actually, in 85, 86, my master's degree uh, thesis 
was on a, a communication system with a mobile robot, right? With an autonomous mobile robot. So you would say like, this is the kind of thing that people are doing today. But yes, yeah, so I was working in a, in a firm that was developing uh, uh, robots that were autonomous, had their own batteries, had their own intelligence. Of course, they were very primitive, but the, and what my part of the project was to uh, build a small system where you, the, the user could type in natural language uh, instructions for the robot. So my system would process the natural language, understand the meaning, and send an order to, to the robot. So it's pretty much the kind of thing that you see now. Except in my case, I would understand like maybe 10 types of sentences, like, uh, you know, please turn left, please turn right, or that was in French, but, you know, the equivalent. Or, and then if, that robot also had uh, sensors, so I could ask, uh, where is the closest object? And uh, the robot will tell me, you know, oh, this is in this direction at this distance. So it sounds like a huge uh, application at the time. Uh, this is what people are doing today. Again, the difference is that the computers were huge. The, 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 the processing power was very limited. So you could do the same kind of application that people are doing now, but at a much, 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 much smaller case, uh, mm. scale. At the time, we had also applications around uh, simple uh, uh, detection of objects in images, right? So I remember my friend was building a system that could differentiate on a production line between a red apple and a green apple. So that, uh, you know, that would command uh, a, a sorting mechanism to sort apple. So that, that was working at the time. So I'm talking about, uh, yeah, unfortunately, 40 years, almost 40 years ago. Uh, and then, but when, and when I taught AI, uh, you'd be surprised, but uh, I, was, I was teaching uh, uh, neural networks. So neural networks were existing at the time. Neural network uh, is nothing new here. You've, it's been around for many years. Neural networks have been around for a long, long time. So the, the, the difference is when we were building neural network at my time, they, you, you had 10 neurons. And then if you could manage to have 100, then you had a huge computer. Uh, well, now they have, you know, tens of billions of, uh, of, uh, of nodes in a network. So that's completely, so that's the main, I mean, there's more than that. I mean, there's been mathematical models have been uh, improved. Uh, ritual propagation, I mean, mechanisms of training neural networks have, have improved, but the idea has been around for a long, long time, and the concept hasn't evolved too much. Is the, the mechanisms, algorithms behind have, have evolved, but the concept, to my knowledge, uh, hasn't changed too much. The, uh, the second um, interesting point in your conversation, in your intro this, uh, this morning, uh, Michelle, and I'm interested to see how uh, you manage this. And one of the things that we talk about uh, always on this channel and the industry in general, especially like with, um, you know, I, I think there's like close to 19,000 companies in our industry, uh, according to CSA research, uh, recent recent um, data. The, uh, the transformation that you went through from, you started as an LSB uh, E2F, that's in the name, uh, English to French, and uh, you've transformed the company into developing and, de and delivering services that they're not necessarily tied in to translation. They're not at all, actually. Uh, you develop, you're developing and delivering software solution. You're developing resources solution related to AI, et cetera. What was the impact on the company? Like, uh, did you have to transfer, you know, retrain the individuals that you're working for you? Uh, did you have to rehire? Um, etc. So can you walk us through that transformation that took place inside of your company? Yeah, first of all, any transformation of a company is, is a huge undertaking, right? Uh, uh, and what I've done, is maybe because it's my personality, I'm a, I'm a curious person, and I would say I'm more of a, an entrepreneur that, than a manager. So at different times of the company's uh, history when when I I did identify a need to change or an opportunity to grab some new piece of, of business or uh, what I've been doing is leading the change by myself. Uh, so instead of trying to get the company to transform, what I've been doing is well creating like a small startup uh, within my company. Uh, 
let somebody else manage the existing business with the existing resources and then start something new and maybe bring one or two, uh, hire one or two people, uh, persons to help me out. And then progressively uh, bring people or steal people from the old companies, the one that I saw were more aligned uh, with what I was trying to do, and then just bring them around us until the company had moved from the, uh, you know, state A to state B. And when you do that, well, people are sorting this, themselves out pretty easily because when you when you launch the startup and you kind of say, okay, I need somebody to help me to do ABC, some people, many people will say, no, 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 I, I cannot do that. I would rather not, right? And then the adventurers, the, the more mobile, agile in their head, just will follow you, right? So mm -hmm. that's what I've been doing. So having certainly like creating... Uh, sorting people out between old business and new business. And uh, what's going happening as well is at some point, the old business start, starts to dwindle, right? Uh, if you were right. So, I mean, if your idea of a new business was correct, uh, then the old business is dwindling naturally, right? So there's attrition in, in that business. So, and then there's like, you know, a growth in the new one. So that's, that's what I've been doing several times. So... Did we retrain people? Yes. So first of all, we selected people who, who had the potential to, to be aligned with the new direction. And then we kind of onboarding them on, on, on the new project. So yeah, we have people in, we have a few people in the company that have been through all those transformations and managed to remain, uh, you know, surfing the wave. Yeah. Uh, some of them did not. You know, some of them, you know, That's had to retrain or give up at some point. But we have a few. I mean, I have a few people. I won't give names here, but we've been with me for 15 years. And again, still surfing wave after wave of transformation. You know, uh, you bring a very good point uh, for um, the audience who are entrepreneurs or are business development, um, people working for entrepreneurs who are thinking about this conversation and how does it apply to you? I think Michelle hit the nail on the head by saying, be curious. And we always talk about that. Be curious. Try to identify if, if you're interested in what's going on around you. You want to transform your company. You want to find a new opportunity. You want to grow your revenue. The first thing you got to look at, um, and the first thing I do, is try to figure out um, what is it that I can do. And I can't answer that question unless I ask, unless I have the curiosity in me to allow me to do this. So be curious is number one. And the second, and the second thing is. Don't be afraid of making small steps. You don't, they don't need to be big steps. Small steps, test the idea. And I think that's what Michelle was, was, uh, did in, in the beginning of um, the evolution of the second phase of his business uh, of E2F. Test the idea small, see if it works, and put smaller investments. You're not going to avoid putting investments. Uh, the point here is you have to make smaller investments. You don't need, they don't need to be big to test the idea. A small investment will allow you to test the idea and see if it works. And if it does work, then you can start building on that one. Am I in my, Yeah, and, and in my case, I like to, to lead this uh, new effort. I think it, it, it's always dangerous. And uh, you see that in many, many companies where the, they have an innovation department somewhere, you know, regardless of the industry. And uh, it, it is really hard to, to manage innovation within a company, especially when you reach a certain time, size. And uh, many projects in innovation centers of large companies actually failing because they don't get, you know, they have to fight against the rest of the company. They are in a cannibalism. Uh, they're, they're afraid to cannibalize. I mean, the rest of the company is afraid to be cannibalized. So I think that, you know, as a CEO or COO of a company, I mean, if you have the, in the ideal situation, I'd say if you have a CEO and COO, best best possible way is to have the COO run the existing business and the CEO uh, kind of go into this innovation mode so that uh, the rest of the company shows that this is the focus and then uh, this is where we need to win. And, and, and as I was, we were discussing before this call that the, uh, the society is moving so fast that if you don't have management really involved in the in the innovation you fall behind i lost you uh, michelle i lost the audio oh 
Let oh, me, back, back I, I think I think I need to change my. Let okay, me. No, no worries. That's fine. Take your time. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry. I had to. You're gonna have an issue because uh, on the audio because I I'm changed. I I, I just oh, by the way. That's fine. I can hear you well. We can enhance the audio. Don't worry about it. We'll cut that part off. Don't worry. Okay. All right. So I, I forgot what I was talking about. So we were talking about the uh, transformation and uh, uh, how companies. Okay. You know, you were talking about CEO the role yeah. and the COO role. And I totally agree with you. You know, like when you're trying to create something new in an organization, you don't want to forget about what's, you know, the where the where the fund is coming from. It's from the existing business. Yes. That's why you pay attention to this particular, you know, the, the cornerstone of the business, which is your existing business, to enable you to fund the new um, yeah. idea. Am I yeah. correct? Yeah, it's correct. But as far as forecast, uh, if the CEO, the CEO, the CEO, everybody is focusing on the existing business, and you have a small group somewhere called innovation or whatnot, focus on the new business, it, it may be complicated to get those ideas and generate it there to really become the focus of the company. So that's why I'm thinking that the CEO needs either to lead uh, that innovation group or to be very, very close to them and uh, why the COO or somebody else that you trust is running your existing one that is at that time hopefully stable and uh, uh, process processized and everything. And, and the second thing I wanted to mention is actually the the values of my company are CARE, C-A-R-E, and the C stands for curiosity. So this is something that we've uh, put at the first value of the company. So we have curiosity, agility, reliability and empathy. So this is, and then it all makes care, you know, which is you know, an easy word to remember and also Very good. care for your vendors, for your, each other, for your, for your clients, obviously. That's very nice um, motto to uh, live by in, in an organization, in a world where we are right now, where we live right now, uh, where uh, empathy and, and, and caring uh, are very, um, are very important, you know, and one of the things that I, uh, I was on a podcast. I do podcasts for other people too. So some, I was somebody invited me yesterday to a podcast, and we we're talking about it, the leadership. And you know, one of the one of the main aspects of the leadership that everybody agrees on is developing leaders, not followers. You know, if you know, true leaders develop people that become <clears throat> their leaders, basically, not necessarily having assistance and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And through that journey that you're talking about, that caring, that empathy, that you know, that reliability, et cetera, uh, for internally and externally focusing, um, I think, and in your, your, through your journey, you probably can pinpoint in your mind, I know, you know what, I think I have like several leaders that I've developed over the years, especially those individuals that have been with you for many years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. Uh, you know, actually, uh, it's interesting that we, quite a few of the leaders we have in the company now are actually people that uh, uh, join us you know, later in our life. So maybe this is what you were trying to say earlier by, by transforming the company several times. It, and then you need different type of people. The, the ones who were uh, uh, good for a certain type of role are not necessarily aligned with the new company. So, you know, we, we had to, to hire new people. And uh, this is what we've been, we've been focusing uh, in the hiring process to hire people who, who were had already been developed or had the potential to become leaders. I mean, let's face it, we work in an industry where it's very labor intensive. You need, yeah. uh, you need people. Um, mm -hmm. It's not like a, so you know, truly a software industry where you develop the software once, you copy it many times, you sell it many times, and that's it. You need people to actually service the customer. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, sometimes, you know, we all wish, I think everybody I know who's running a, a service company uh, which is to, to be selling a product instead, right? Because it's, 
it seems simpler to to develop a product. You know, you have high margins, you have uh, uh, the scalability is easier to get and everything. Mm-hmm. But I think most of the service companies trying to turn in themselves into a product companies fail because it's a completely different mindset. Uh, and when you look at uh, like a, the way you run a SaaS platform, the way you operate a, a product-based uh, or platform-based business is completely different from a, from a service business. So yes, unfortunately, uh, you have to accept uh, in the service industry that no, you're not going to make the, 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 the big margins. You don't, you're not going to have the scale, the acceleration uh, leverage that you can get with product. And then it's based on, it's based on people. It's based on people. It's based on processes. It's based on uh, uh, trying to repeat your process over and over. But each time it's going to be a new client. It's going to be, it's going to be a slightly different situation. You need, you need, you need agility. You need, you need to listen to your client. You need to be able to listen to them and to mm-hmm. them what they want rather than, you know, forcing your, your way of doing things. Yeah. Now, so if you don't mind, um, can you talk to a little bit about how does E2F market and sell its services? Do you have a sales development team? Do you have a marketing team? Uh, how, how do you go about selling services? Yeah, we, we do have a very small marketing team uh, and we don't have a sales team as such, actually. So this is something that people always find surprising. But we have been uh, on in the localiz- on the localization side. Uh, we've been developing clients through uh, referrals uh, and uh, account management. So getting leads, not necessarily from our website, not necessarily from uh, sales activity, but mostly from referrals, either from partners or from existing clients. Uh, and on the data side, uh, AI data side of the business, which is the largest one now. Uh, it's been few people who trusted us working for large tech companies reaching out to us yeah. and, and us listening to them, delivering what they wanted, and then internally uh, referring us internally again, but to, to other departments, divisions. And again, uh, always been a combination of uh, referrals and account management for us. And are you seeing, like, are you getting the growth you like? Uh, are you achieving your goals? Uh, are, are, you, are you satisfied with the way the company is progressing, even though you don't have a sales, sales team? Yes and no. Uh, yes, in the sense that we are, we are able to, to grow our uh, uh, existing clients at, at, at a heavy pace. No, in the sense that because of the way the industry is transforming and the company is transforming, uh, there are services, things that we were doing two years ago that we were not doing that have been replaced by new business. So in a way, our new businesses keep growing, but our uh, existing businesses uh, are coming down uh, too fast so, so that the, the growth doesn't look the top line growth doesn't look as, as strong as it, uh, as it would. But for any of, for example, our data uh, AI business is growing maybe at the 50, 60% uh, uh, rate. But because we, the staffing business disappeared, the, it, it, the top line grows, but not as fast as the actual business. I'm not sure whether I explained that properly. No, you're, 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 you're absolutely correct. I mean, um... There's two reasons you would have, I mean, you know, mind me for saying this, I've been in business development and sales for the past 30 years. Uh, <clears throat> you would have sales teams for various reasons, obviously to generate revenue. Mm-hmm. And, but if uh, your product is selling and your service is selling, you know, then you would have a questions to do, uh, to, 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 comp- to contemplate, do I need salespeople? And if you're happy with the growth, you're happy with the revenue that's being generated, that's fine. Uh, but where it comes a little tricky is what you just mentioned, rebalancing the book of business, diversifying the book of business, minimizing risk on the business, plus attracting new customers. Obviously, that comes with the territory. But there is an added benefit of rebalancing the book of business. And diversification in our business is very interesting because yeah. every company I've looked at and every company we've we've talked to, they seem to follow this. And I'm not sure about ETF because I don't know your company uh, in, intimately yet. Uh, but most companies have the same issue where you have 80% of the revenue coming from the top 20 customers. 
and the rest of the you know the rest of the twenty percent of the revenue comes from you know a long tail of accounts we call them, and I don't know if you guys um, if you guys at EQF have the same issue or not, uh, but that's thematic yeah, around our industry. We are in the same situation, and uh, it's really hard to 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 escape that situation because. Uh, in our case, and I don't know for others, but in our case, the, our large clients are, are really large companies, uh, like very big tech companies. So, and then we have all those, all these long tail, uh, small clients. Uh, but with our long tail, small clients, we, we maximize the, the, the revenue pretty quickly. Uh, so you can, as you said before, you can only acquire those like, Either with aggressive sales or with very uh, strong marketing, but on the the but the company focus tends to be on those one or two uh, very large clients. But those those one, if you service them well, if you you if you do what they want, what they need, uh, they can they can generate hundred percent, two hundred percent growth year after year. So for the rest of the company to catch up with your growth of those uh, big wells, it, it's really complicated. And I don't know whether anybody found, found the recipe out there, but uh, I mean, our recipe currently has been to have maybe more than one well, right? Having two or three or four wells so that at least you spread out the risk. But there's something else though. When, when you have one of those large well clients, you actually, yes, it's one name, but it's actually, you work with 10 different departments, 10 different divisions, so each one is really like an individual client. So if you look at it this way, if you have two or three of the big tech companies, you actually have like 30 or 40 clients there. Mm -hmm. So how do you, like, I don't know if, it's, if it applies to you, but how do you manage risk? I've, I've seen it in other companies um, where let's say you have one of these big whales, as you call them, um, and for some reason, the relationship, you know, they run an RFP, you don't win it, et cetera. So you end up, losing one of those big whales, that's the, uh, I hope not, and God forbid you do. Uh, but let's say you did, just for the sake of argument, would not be a risk for your business? And how do you manage that? Obviously, there would be a risk, right? So the, uh, the, 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 but as I said before, when you lose an RSP with one of those uh, companies, it would be a certain RSP isn't in a certain department, right? It doesn't mean that you're not going to keep working with all the others. So this kind of already uh, no, uh, balances out a little bit. But apart from that, no, that, I mean, I, I wish I had the magic way of um, managing the risk. I mean, the, the easiest way to do it is just don't work with big wells, right? But no. you have to be satisfied with a small recovery. I mean, that's, that's a, and I know companies doing that, right? To say, right. no, I don't want to work with any of the big companies. I don't want to play this game or RFPs and everything. I would rather have only uh, like less business, but more controllable with, you know, smaller size accounts where I'm the only vendor and this is kind of, you know, an ongoing relationship. That's another way to manage business, which, which was actually what we were doing for many years. For many years, we had mostly mid-size localization clients, continuous translation, ongoing relationship. Uh, and this is, this is kind of a, a, a nice way to manage uh, what they call a, a lifestyle company. All right. When you start playing with the big wells, then you have to be ready for, to play at their level with their own roles. And then suddenly, uh, exactly like you said, introduce uh, more risk in, uh, in, in your company. Right. That's right. Now, if you don't mind, let's switch gear a little bit. Um, so we know where we are right now. And since you are in the middle of it, and we talked a little bit about earlier, like business plans don't last six months, <laughs> where do you see technology is taking us and with the acceleration of development, how's that impacting? Because back in the, you know, I mean, when you and I, uh, I assume you and I, because I think I graduated the same year you graduated from the same age group. Um, back in the days, we used to say, you know, development cycle goes for two, three years. Now it's like a month, a uh, mm -hmm. few weeks in some mm -hmm. cases. So where do you see technology taking us next? And what's your, if you were to have a read on the future, where do you, where do you think we're going uh, the in terms of evolution, in terms of our services, in terms of your business? I mean, for us, I mean, I'm not going to say anything uh, surprising when I say that LLMs are, are very likely here to stay and are very likely here to uh, transform many industries, including the localization industry. 
uh, we are in a way in a in an interesting position because we are a lot of our business actually helping uh, big tech companies uh, uh, improve, develop, or fine tune their their base uh, base uh, LLM models. So we see what we are what they are doing. We see what they are working on, uh, and we are uh, how to say that we are spending a lot of time on that. And, and I see that the applications that uh, of LLMs are going to go everywhere, right? Uh, mm-hmm. To have a, a general purpose uh, LLM model is extremely p- powerful. So, how much it, is it going to replace, uh, you know, localization translation? Probably to a big extent. Uh, I mean, some companies out there have both LLMs and MT uh, engines that are already extremely powerful. Uh, LLMs are becoming or are going to become relatively easy to customize, to fine-tune. This is actually uh, one of the uh, tracks of our company currently. So we are, we are, as I said before, we are working with builders of LMs to help them uh, refine their base model, but we are also working with just uh, mid-sized companies to help them implement, customize, fine-tune, uh, an LLM for a specific application. What we see is there, there's going to be more and more cases where you don't have to go through localization anymore. Right? So if as a company, say, assuming you are a SaaS platform and you, and you want to launch a new service that is text-based and you want to launch it simultaneously in, in different countries, you're probably going to use an LLM uh, as your foundation and generate content independently for each language, you, why would you go through a translation process? Mm-hmm. Big brands may, may feel that this is going to dilute their brands, but not necessarily. So this is what they are uh, talking about now. Right? Does, it, does it make sense anymore to translate when you want to go from English to Spanish? Why don't you just generate content? Yes, uh, and with a proper use of LLM, you can imagine some applications that are going to be very powerful. For example, you, you, you could imagine a website where the, the contents that you see as a user is generated on the fly. So rather than having a static website, right? For, for example, for a product description. Now, if you go to a website for a product description, if you see in English, you see the text that has been developed by the marketing person in English. If you see, if you go to the Spanish website, this text has been translated enough for Spanish, right? But now imagine that uh, this website decides that they will look, they will use the parameters mm-hmm. that they know about the user. Mm-hmm. For example, they know not only that you are uh, in the US, but they know that you are male, right? Uh, they could, they could uh, show you a product description in English, but where a ChatGPT LLM type model would know that, oh, for male, I'm going to present the text a certain way because it resonates be- better with, with male population. If you're a female, you would see a slightly different description. And now yeah. if you are in Spain not in, in male, well, you're going to get a Spanish male. But at the, the way you would do that with LLM is you have a product's uh, definition, which is done in English once. And then you ask, you dynamically, you prompt the, your custom model to generate on the fly with information about both the user, their location, uh, the style guide of the company, et cetera, et cetera. A description that would f- fit not only the company, but you at the same time. Where's, where's translation in there? Yeah. And this is part of that, that whole customer experience that everybody keeps talking about. Um, how do we make sure that the customers are uh, receiving the best experience when they come into a digital environment to exchange uh, with retail or consumer of some sort? And it, and it seems that, it seems that mm-hmm. the, the, the linguistic uh, inputs, the, the knowledge of all the linguists around the world 
it is going to be more uh, used to customize, fine tune the LLM than it is going to to translate the text. You you, you right. don't need to do that. There's going to be still some maybe some post editing, but probably not because as a company, once you deploy uh, as a brand, once you deploy this kind of model on your website. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you're not going to need translation anymore, but what you may need, you may need evaluation, right? So, mm-hmm. so you would say that, you know, uh, maybe the translators or maybe there won't be translators anymore. Their job will be to evaluate, you know, randomly uh, some pages generated by, uh, by the website for some situation mm-hmm. and you know, uh, grade them, right? Was, was, uh, was it accurate? Was it well-defined? Was the style this and this and that? And then using this information, you can fi- keep fine-tuning your engine to get, you know, in- increasingly better results. So that's what I say is going to happen. And uh, uh, I-, I-, I don't see the translator there. So um, I was, you know, I was always under the belief that, uh, you know, we, uh, human in the middle. And on my blog, I always talk about, you know, that hybrid model, technology and human interacting together and forming the future, if you will. Until uh, a couple of days ago, somebody hit me on uh, Twitter telling me I lost, I'm a translator. I lost my job because of AI. And, you know, so that goes to what you were saying earlier. If you don't see the translator in the process, that means some translators, uh, although there's not many of them in, you know, in comparison to the content that we're trying to translate around the world, we need a lot more translators. And that's why the uh, AI and and large language models are taking place. Because translation transition industry cannot take all the content that needs to be translated and do it in an old-fashioned way of being translated. You, yeah. you, you know, so that individual really, you know, pointed it to me that I lost my job because of AI. And here's me, I was advocating all the time that no translator, because we don't have enough of them. They will always be in the middle trying to fine-tune the models, trying to, you know, uh, make sure that the, uh, that the uh, quality of what we're producing from a technology perspective satisfactory to the customer. Which brings me to the next topic where, you know, I'm hearing a lot about, you know, that whole idea, the, philosoph- the philosophical debate around, you know, I want to achieve speed, I want to achieve low-cost translation, and I want to achieve some sort of an accuracy in my translation it's being sacrificed to the degradation of quality. Some people are talking about, okay, so I'm getting it fast, I'm getting it cheap, fine, but the quality is not what it used to be anymore. Uh, what's your comments on this? <clears throat> uh, I mean, actually, the, 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 what, I, what we see, because we, we do a lot of that, is the, the, the quality, how to say that, uh, the quality is being displaced to the to the translation engines, right, uh, or to the LLMs. So all those LLM engine builders in general, their focus is on quality, right. So the the, the and we are spending a lot of time helping them improve the model, but qualify the models, right. So I, I believe that the uh, uh, the focus is still going to be on quality. But it will be in terms of evaluation of what has been created by the machine and how to re-inject that to f- keep fine-tuning the model. I do not believe that companies are going to keep going through uh, a translation, whether or machine translation and post-editing model for too, too long. I believe they are going to be more of generated by LLM or machine translation evaluate the quality, and then retrain, retrain, fine-tune, fine-tune the model until the quality keeps improving. So I think the quality is going to be more tuning, more uh, changing the parameters, changing the model, uh, and less on a human taking something and making it final. I I, I don't see that happening for for too long. You believe then, Michelle, that we do have in place right now all the tools from a technology perspective to eventually down the road as we continue, as you said, tweaking the technology and improving it to have to arrive to a place where we say, I am producing quality according to customer's expectation or the, or the consumer expectation, the consumer of the content expectations. Uh, I, it, it looks to me that it's happening. Uh, there's always going to be, you know, a, a, a small discrepancy between perfect quality and 
the quality that is provided by the engine. But I, I believe like from a business standpoint, it is going to keep making more sense to improve your model, to keep getting in like one extra percent, two extra percent of quality. It's probably going to be a best invest, uh, investment for the companies to yep. keep building their model that to invest at the edge by having humans uh, trying to get this uh, extra percent for each text. Right? I, I, I believe that is going to be, from a business standpoint, I think that one makes more sense for companies. Absolutely. Um, now, um, as we move along... Then, you're, you're, always, you're talking about us people losing their job. I mean, maybe they should consider changing their job, right? Because in order to fine-tune models, and I, I'm talking with... Uh, we are talking with, I won't say names, but with, you know, high... Uh, level people in several uh, translation engine uh, and LLM uh, engine companies, uh, they are extremely concerned uh, with evaluation of quality, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they, they realize that to fine tune a model, you need to have excellent linguistic, linguistic expertise mm -hmm. to guide the model towards best possible translation, right? Mm -hmm. And who, who is best than uh, translators to have them doing that? So the best translators uh, have a lot of work to do in uh, engine fine-tuning because mm -hmm. their expertise, the, the, their, their cultural, their linguistic sensibility is what, the, what is required to improve an engine. And I do believe that also there is, you know, I don't want to throw another, you know, another in-depth topic that we can talk about for a day here is the academic portion, right? So the academic, the academic part where, you know, universities are still graduating translators. Usually the academia is the last one to catch up. And I'm not saying that to be negative to the academia. It's, I think we have to do some transformation there as we transform, as the industry is being transformed. Those individuals graduating from linguistic degrees, they need to be up to speed on the latest that's going on in our industry. And I find over time that there is a gap. There's a gap between when that individual is graduating and entering into the workforce, being a translator, to the status that we have right now in our industry. You're talking about AI language models, et cetera. And the individual coming to university saying, what is this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think if you, yeah, nowadays, if you graduate with a translation degree and you expect to be a translator, uh, you you seriously in the wrong, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, it's still going to be small jobs, maybe like the small restaurant down the street who wants their menu, you know, translated appropriately in five languages. This kind of job is probably still going to be available. Uh, a lot of small companies who don't have the means or really the 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 needs to 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 install an LLM and everything, maybe working for translator with translators here and there. But this is going to become like really a minority, minority at the border. So if the, yeah, if you're a translator, you're interested in languages, you're interested in multiple languages in culture, uh, I do suggest that you also uh, uh, get interested in technology, uh, become very competent on uh, language evaluation metrics and things of this nature, because this is what is uh, going to be needed to keep improving the models and get those little by little, those extra percent of quality that are still uh, differentiating from the machine output uh, and the human outputs. That's right. So uh, as we wrap up our conversation, I still have one more point I would like to run by you. Um, now, you've had a very interesting career from beginning to where you are right now. If you don't mind, uh, hopefully it's not, uh, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but if you were to reflect back and think about it from, if I had to do it all over again, how do I do this? Uh, do you have any thoughts on this or you would do exactly where you are right now or do you do it differently? I, I have no idea. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, as I said, I am, when I studied my life, I was looking for adventure, right? And I didn't know what it meant. So it was, to me, it was like, okay, going around the world. Mm -hmm. And I've thought that, right? I've been living around the world. So this part, I would not change. Uh, and then I realized along my journey that I was also an entrepreneur, which I had no idea when I was in school, right? And then, yes, I would probably be an entrepreneur. So what exactly, in what fields, in what country, I don't think it's very relevant. No. So I could have picked well. a number of journeys, I think, providing, from my standpoint, providing that 
I would have been able to explore the world and then, you know, touch different industries and, and learn from different people, different things. It's again, like going back to curiosity, curiosity doesn't mind where it goes. It's right. equally curious about everything. That's right. That's right. You see what I mean? No, I know. Uh, I know exactly what you mean. A lot of times, you know, I, 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 I neglected to tell you this, but I'm also an immigrant to Canada. I came in, you know, in the early 90s uh, to Canada. You know, I, mean, I come from Lebanon um, and, uh, you know, did the, did, what, did the journey that I need to do. And uh, here I am, you know, here I am right now. Um, that's, a, that's a different topic for a different day. But uh, um, it's an honor and pleasure to have you with me uh, today, Michelle. I hope one day I get to see you face to face and shake your hand and uh, maybe ha- have a beer together. <clears throat> Thanks. Thanks, Robin. And yeah, keep going to conferences and I will keep going to conferences. At some point, we'll be at the same one. And absolutely. And, and you're always welcome on this channel. Like if um, any of um, if your um, leaders in, in E2F wants to uh, come in and talk specifically about a specific topic, happy to host them, happy to do this. It's something I do. It's not sponsored by anybody. It's not sponsored by my current employer. It's my personal initiative. And the reason I started this is because like you, and like every, like many people I've met in this industry, we do have lots of passion for this industry and mm-hmm. haven't worked for it for 20 uh, odd years. I feel like I need to contribute. And here's my contribution to the industry. So thanks again for being part of this conversation today. Any final thoughts before we uh, stop the recording? <clears throat> no, I think that's uh, very interesting. And I'm, uh, uh, you know, again, curiosity first. Uh, be curious. Learn. The world is changing very fast, so that's right. Not curious and able to adapt, then it's, it's going to be tough. Yeah. Hey, I want to thank everybody for joining me today on this uh, episode uh, with an inter- interesting conversation with Michelle uh, Lopez from E2F. If you want to find out more about E2F, you can go to their website e2f.com, and um, I highly recommend having a conversation with E2F if you have any AI uh, needs or any large language models, as Michelle was been, was talking about earlier, or if you have any translation needs to uh, contact um, 